The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones. Welcome to the We Are LCC podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Christine Jones, your host, LCC alum, parent, and the school's alumni officer. Today, head of school Chris Shannon is with us, and we're privileged to have him join us for a great conversation about education and preparing students for their future. The first thing I'd like to do is welcome you. Thank you for joining us as a guest on our new We Are LCC podcast. It's great to have you. Well, it's great to be here. And over the year, not just on the podcast, but with our alumni, you have become the host with the most. And it's interesting when we started all this because you wonder, I don't know about all that, but you've done a great job. So, so nice to be here. Thank you. Well, it's definitely a new new avenue for me, but it's been fun. I'll just ask you to tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting because I guess a lot of maybe some of even our parents who are newer to the school, especially in COVID, see me through the lens of school principal, head of school, all that kind of stuff and, and, and wouldn't know necessarily my background. So I come from a Montreal family. I grew up, I had four brothers, five boys. I know you're a, you're a mother of four boys, so you have an idea what it's like to have such a household. And, you know, I grew up in Montreal. I did my undergrad work in Canada. I did graduate work in Switzerland and Geneva, Switzerland. And, you know, a curious story is that I, I went there and I did a master's in uh, history and, and international relations in Geneva and ended up being the player coach of the University of Geneva hockey team, which I had no plans to do, but it just happened. And it was a wonderful thing. And I did graduate work in Ontario while I was teaching later on. I grew up in the city when I saw an exodus in the 1980s post-referendum of a lot of my peers. So it's sort of been an interesting scenario to have seen that. I, I was a teacher and administrator at Appleby College in Oakville for 14 years. I ended up as head of Stansted College starting in 1999, came here in 2005. And I've had the opportunity during the time I'm at the school to sit on the boards of some really great organizations, which has given me perspective beyond the end of my nose and beyond just school purpose. And so I was on the executive, remain on the executive of the Quebec Association of Independent Schools, the National Association of Independent Schools case. I've sat on the board of the International Association of Schools Round Square and also have done a ton of work and has been very satisfying with the Vimy Foundation to create a lot of programs around World War I for students. So I guess the big question is, why did you go into education? Well, you know what? It's interesting because I think that this generation is so very focused on having a plan, right? And here's step one, two, three, four, right down the line. I don't think I really had that so much. I almost stayed in Europe because I finished my master's degree in Geneva and I had opportunities to stay there, but I was married and my wife was a teacher at the time. So I was married to an educator who was amazing at her job and she's a specialist in special education and we, she was on a leave. And I was offered a job. It came to me, interestingly, to go and teach at Appleby College. And I was very interested in doing it. But I, to be honest, I thought I was going to do it in the short term. And then I got hooked into, I think, work that is about ideas. Independent schools are very much about community. I really like the idea of continuous growth just being embedded in, if you're an educator, you really should be dedicated to that. And that good schools provided those opportunities, certainly to me and to my colleagues. 
I really liked being working with young people and also helping them in that in that complicated journey of personal and character development in a busy and complicated world that they're trying to make sense of. Never along the way, because along the line over my years in education, because this is now my 37th year in education, really never has there been a dull day. And I have to tell you on the days which maybe, you know, you come in in February and it's 30 below zero and it's crazy and you're just lucky you felt you made it to work. You see the look in the eyes of a lot of kids, whether it's the primary school child or the adolescent trying to figure something out or students involved in an activity. I certainly see that spark all the time. I was at a play last night for grade 11 students. It was great to see them doing something unique. And I think the pandemic has taught us that we probably, we probably in schools have the most important job in society. And when parents, the kids were out of school for four months and then they were able to come back to school and we gave kids a sense of connectivity and purpose, I think it reinforced something and we shouldn't let the reality of a busy life wash over those feelings and that reality that we experienced as we came back and marshaled through the pandemic. So I would do it again. So then in your professional career, what do you think are the three most significant developments that have shifted education in that 30 year, 37 year span, as you just said? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was asked to make a speech last summer to the National Association of Schools and, and they have a leadership development program. And at the end of it, they asked some people to come in and speak, which I did. And I remember when I started, we were using those old things that you might even remember at uh, the beginning of your school days, Gestetners, where a teacher would come in with a thing that had a smell to it because it was sort of purple ink. And you, you would have to, I wasn't even typing things up when I first started teaching. It was, it was handwriting and you'd go and you'd copy these things on a Gestetner, you'd make copies. We couldn't even afford to do photocopies at the time. Yeah, actually still, I think we still had that in high school, which dates me as well. <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. It's, I've had the chance to see, I think one of the massive, massive shifts, of course, is IT and technology, its integration into education, into our world, into our lives, for good and for bad. It's really provided fantastic opportunities for educators to be more effective, access resources, videos, you know, clips of this and that, documents that otherwise were hidden in some library or some museum somewhere. And so we, I think educators really had to learn how to make that shift and to do it effectively. The bad of it, I think, is what one educator called the shallows, the shallows of the internet generation where it's just the headline and, and not what's behind it. And that may be bent and not necessarily clear either. And more on that perhaps later in terms of the impact on uh, the internet world, this generation. But I think it's a, the IT piece has been amazing. I think for educators, in my time, we've certainly seen the move from what educators like to refer to from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side, that the role of the educator has got to be to create many more activities which are engaging for kids where you're guiding them in the right direction. There's certainly a time and place for the delivery of information, key information, and helping kids make sure that they've got core elements, but then they can move forward. I think that the guide on the side piece has to be, a, I'd add a word to that, an inspiring guide on the side because kids need to feel like what they're doing is, is meaningful. And I would say that maybe the third big factor that we are wrestling with as educators is a pervasive development around anxiety. And the pandemic, this existed before the pandemic, and we really have had to train our faculty in dealing with our students as people and the fact that when they arrive at school, if their feet are not on the ground and they don't feel comfortable and they don't feel safe and they don't feel like things are okay, it's hard for them to learn. So this business of the rise of anxiety amongst students, but also amongst parents, 
And I remember very well some years ago, we had a speaker at the school, Alex Russell, Dr. Alex Russell from Toronto, who wrote a book called Drop the Worry Ball, Parenting in the 21st Century. And he began his, his session with our parents and looked at them all and said, you know, with all due respect, the biggest problem with the kids that I see in my clinic growing up is you. Not because you're bad people, but because you want, you so, so want for your kids to do well that you are preventing them from having the kind of little challenges and failures, setbacks and hurdles, which they actually need to learn because that's part of learning. And it's really the only failure we want to avoid is catastrophic failure. And for reasons which are also logical, parents are saying, but I want my child to do well. I want my child to be happy. And unfortunately, Unintentionally, some parents become a block in the learning process for children. So we have to work with parents in ways which are new and different so they can actually have the space to allow their children to have, have that experience. And I know we, we said we were going to talk about three, but a fourth one just sort of popped into my head. And so I'm just wondering if we could talk about a fourth development where education has shifted and acknowledge the different learning styles that have come into play and how we have to provide support to those students. The business of neurological diversity, different learning styles, I was lucky enough, really, at from the beginning of my entry into education to be married to a special ed specialist. So somebody who had always worked with diverse learners. I watched my wife working in the public system, working with in challenged environments, kids who were, were challenged for one reason or another. And it interestingly crossed all across the socioeconomic range. It wasn't particular to a particular sector of society. It's a brain science. And we've learned so much. We've learned more in the last 10 years about the brain than we knew in the history of the world prior to that. I came here in 2005 and I remember, I remember being interviewed and this was a question, but the group, the group was not really an expert in education around the boardroom table. But, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I was bold and I said, look, I'm going to tell you something. I think that this is an area where we in independent schools in Canada, and I was, I'd been in a couple of them. I'd been almost 20 years in education at the time. I think we have failed terribly because we, we have been afraid in, in let's call them case schools, the national independent schools to say that we aren't strong at something. And I said that we have not properly acknowledged neurodiversity and we haven't set up ways for those kids to have the right tools, especially given brain science knowledge that we now have. And so a couple of years into my mandate here, we, we started lead as a section within the school because it was, it was one halftime tutor in, in the school who was supporting a few students. But I knew we needed to become much more systematic and we needed to respect the shifts in education, the shifts and knowledge and research in neurodiversity. And I'm very proud of the fact that we have close to 10 people working in ways that are working directly with students, but also supporting our teachers about how to train their, their students the best, but how to access the best in them. And I think that that's very, very important. So this is a big, big shift that we're, I think every school is having to adapt to. Right. And I guess when we talk about, you know, significant developments and the shift of education, that must bring about several challenges. So in your opinion, what are those challenges faced by the different constituencies? We've got the schools, but then we look at a perspective from the students, parents, teachers. Can you speak to that for a couple minutes? Sure. So let me talk about the kids first, because, you know, we talk about students first at LCC and we mean it. So let's face it. We live in a world where there is so much entertainment for kids. It's to the point that if you were to bring a Nobel laureate to come and speak to them in an assembly, it's like, well, who was that guy? He was really boring. And so the challenge for teachers is huge. We have to find ways to engage kids and to interest them. And that's a big mouthful because they can see so much on that little item that they carry around. 
that electronic item that virtually all of them in high school have and carry around. We don't have allow them in the classes, by the way. So we have to use them and not use them in ways that should be appropriate. But we have to find ways to be relevant. We have to help kids feel a sense of purpose when they come to school and a sense of connection. The human contact, and you know, we've done, we did pretty well virtually, but I still am a big, big supporter of in-person human contact. It makes a big difference for kids. We could have kids who are struggling at home for a million reasons, and when they come to school, they feel a sense, a kind of calm, because they have teachers who, who they trust and, and that they believe in. There was a massive study done in 1999 called the U.S. National Study on Adolescent Health, and it looked at hundreds of thousands of students and what are the factors which keep them away from negative outcomes, early pregnancy, drug abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there were only two. One was a strong sense of connection to home, and number two is a strong sense of connection to school. They don't have to be getting 90%. They have to feel a connection and rooted to their school experience. That has been replicated every 10 years since in great detail, and it has not changed. We have a mandate and importance at school about giving kids a sense of purpose, but it can't always be the same. It will shift in time, you know, with different, different techniques that we might employ. The other thing is a big challenge is that we have a society where we aspire to excellence and it's a bit of a, a conflict here at LCC because we aspire to excellence. But I remind the students at the start of the year, every year in our, in our assembly, really to kick off the year. And I should be doing it more often, frankly, throughout the year in different ways. And I try to find it, a ways to do it in small ways. And it's a simple reminder to students, you are enough. You are enough. And we have to remind them that's who we are. This is our culture. We accept you as you are. We will work with you to help you learn and grow, get better at various things, truly be excellent in some areas. But this is how we can counter that pervasive anxiety we read so much about. This is how we can build a sense of belonging and the perfect fake social media self that their peers are often portraying is not very real. And, and the research is telling us that it is actually quite negative in terms of its impact and more so even on young girls, early adolescents, young girls, you know, and it's, it's just such that we need to remind kids, you are enough as you are right now and we're going to work together going forward. And if they believe us, it's amazing what they will do with us. And when I say us, our fantastic teachers who, you know, do take them places. There are standards which kids have to meet. So this can't be all, you know, cushy, cushy. But at the same time, if it's genuine in our culture, kids see everything. They don't miss a trick. And if they believe that we believe in them, they will do amazing things for us. We have to be repetitive in our consistency, you know, in, in like really deep because otherwise kids will write the adults off pretty quickly. And they'll go back to the little electronic tool and try and seek something somewhere else. Or in their own youth culture, which is more powerful during adolescence than parenting, unfortunately. It's a very powerful force. It's the second family. And for a while, it almost becomes the first family. My peers are so important. But they do come back and come out of that. And uh, we see that. I also think a challenge, of course, we sort of touched on it. But for teachers, it's how do you take the whether it's the evolving technology or in the last decade and certainly the last five years, we've been moving towards a framework of MYP, which is a good framework, but it doesn't mean you can't do your own thing as a teacher and shine because you have creative ideas. But there's a lot of demands on teachers, whether it's technology, parents expecting their child to be number one sometimes when really they have to maybe be lower in the pack for a while in a particular subject area and then work their way out of it. And I think parents who are our partners need to have confidence in the teachers as professionals. And they also have to sometimes step back and realize that learning and adolescence is a time of identity building. So there's going to be highs and lows. 
And in those highs and lows, and this is a really tough one. I mean, I, I'm a parent too. So you see that there are some difficult moments for your child and they, they really hurt as a parent when you see your child going through those moments, right? So managing all of that together in partnership is a challenge for parents, but in partnership with the schools is a challenge for our partnership. So we have all those partnerships, which are constantly shifting and changing over time. But if we build the right culture and again, are consistent about it, I think we can do great things with children. That kind of leads me into my next question. So what are the qualities that we should be developing in our children? And then as educators, what is our responsibility towards that? Well, that's a gazillion dollar question. But in my view, rather than thinking that the qualities are all about aligning ourselves with the latest educational direction, it comes back to basics. Character trumps achievement. It just does. And I, I often like to say that, you know, the Unabomber was a Harvard grad. He did really, really well, but he was a bad guy. <laughs> Character trumps achievement. And we have to align what we do with our values all the time. We have core values at LCC. They are respect, resilience, kindness, integrity, well-being, global engagement. Those are our core values. We have, you know, non nobis solum, so service right at the core of our mission in terms of who we are as a school from the point of establishment. We work in the IB that has 10 attributes, learner attributes, which are great. And so what's good about that is that our teachers are using that common language and it appears from classroom to classroom to classroom from grade seven through to grade 12. I was at an IB uh, personal project fair yesterday where the kids were talking and using that language. So there's some common language use, which is great. But I would say that something we really need to develop in our children as well is find a way to maintain what I like to call the grade three attitude. We'll focus on creativity and playfulness because school by its definition, the way that traditional school has been, drums it out of kids and we have to find ways to bring it back and put it in the foreground. So if you're a teacher, don't teach the same way every day. You've got to do different kinds of units. The brain gets surprised by a change. You know, if I'm the teacher, Mr. Shannon did this, like, what's going on here? Like, we don't do this usually in this class. So shift things around a little bit and it will keep them alert, but also focus on creativity and playfulness. Just to jump back to something that you had mentioned before about the school parent partnership, what in your view does the ideal partnership with those two constituencies look like? Parents are making a great investment in particular in independent schools. And that investment is not a transactional thing. So it is a significant investment, but it's not a, just a transaction. It cannot simply be a consumer approach. It's about building a partnership. And we are, and I see this, I've seen this for over 30 years, we are stronger together. We are. Everybody has a role. The parents and that national study in adolescent health showed it was home and school. And the, most, the more that home and school can be aligned, the better we're going to be for the welfare of children and their development. So we're stronger together, but we need to understand that children and adolescents, and they leave here still as adolescents, are designed to screw up. They're designed to seek who am I and what is my identity and to test boundaries. So in that partnership, we need to reinforce core messages. We need to support each other and the child. And along that journey is not about child perfection. It's about development. So in the development age appropriate, I like to remind parents over and over again, it's a partnership, but the teacher is the senior partner. We see your child actually more during the day than you do during these years. And the comportment and behavior of a child in a group setting or under duress or whatever is not always the same as it is at home. When in front of peers, it could be quite different. And so if a, if a student or a child has gone offside, it's not going to be the end of the world, but we will, we will give them the consequences they need 
and some guidance and support, hopefully going forward. But sometimes parents resist the fact that, you know, Johnny couldn't have behaved that way or Sally could not have ever done that. She's never done that before. And we don't make these things up. And it's not the fault of the teacher. The teacher is really, you know, helping the child in the highs and lows, the valleys and the troughs, uh, try to find a balance and a, and a kind of equilibrium. And if we do that together and respect each other and take a deep breath sometimes, I, I have asked in the past, I did send a letter a few years ago and said, please, first of all, I wiped out email as a form of conversation at the school. That was an edict. And also give yourself 24 hours when it really, as a parent, because it will, it can really hurt. The story that you hear from Sally might be, first of all, it might be one-sided, but it also might be quite honest and it may be quite truthful and maybe very hurtful. 24 hours about how do we build the next steps with the teacher or the administrator going forward? We had that same rule came into play a couple of times on kids hockey teams where the coach said, if you have, so I, you know, coach, coaches, teachers, that sort of relationship, probably quite similar with parents. But the coach said to the parents, you know, after the game, if you have an issue with something that you didn't like, do not call me or email me until 24 hours later. Let it settle. Adolescence is a mount is a mountain region. I mean, it's up and down. You're in the valley. You're on the top of the hill. There are great highs, and there can be terrible lows. When you throw the social media piece in with your friend's perspective on it all, seventeen ways to Sunday that you don't even know about because you don't see it. We used to have a phone, and my parents actually created a teen phone. We had five boys in the family. We had a teen phone, and we could sometimes we could speak on it during certain times, and that was it in terms of outside the house. And, and none of them have the long cord that they have to get stuck to the wall. Oh, but I mean, really creating some rules around it in the household. And when the child says, or the young person says, well, but my friends don't have to do that. You shouldn't care if you're the parent. Create your own, your own norms here. The same way at LCC, I got a lot of inspiration from a, a guy by the name of Rob Evans, who's an, a well-known writer, American educational psychologist, who reminded us as heads of school that we are swimming upstream against very, very powerful social currents. They are more powerful than what we are trying to create in our schools. Those are powerful forces. But it's okay for us to define what matters here. So that goes back to our core values. Our core values are, you know, I, I tell the kids also regularly, you know, there's a big rule book out there, but let's just call it respect. Respect yourself, respect your peers, respect every adult that you ever encounter, whether it's a teacher or a staff member or a visitor to the school. And when you're offside, because you're bright young people, you usually know, and it's pretty clear, own it. And kids are pretty good at that, generally speaking. We have, we have great kids, and relative to some of the issues that are out there in society and some school systems, we're not challenged the way some others are. Well, so to that point, then, what do you believe should be the primary areas of focus for schools in the next few years? Well, I'll tell you a big one. For most of the years coming into the pandemic, so coming into 35 years as an educator, I would tell you, you know, we had multiple things going on in school and multiple areas of focus. And I would say academics, the old Latin phrase was primus inter pares, first amongst equals. I no longer believe it. I think wellness is. And I think that we, we thought for too long that wellness was an adjunct kind of thing and was an add-on. In my thinking, has, this has shifted completely. I believe well-being is first. And until we can focus with greater intentionality in a way that kids hear us and believe us in that whole business of modeling, we actually have leading by example as the start of our mission statement, because everybody in our, every adult in our building should be leading by example, again, not through perfection, but through a consistency that's genuine. And our students see us and how we behave. And if we're consistent and genuine, 
They'll believe in us and they'll trust us. Until a student trusts the adults in the building and until they feel safe, they don't believe that anything is possible. They really, they're, they're, they're on edge. So well-being, I think, is the first priority which we need to get better at. We've been working this year on developing the PERMA-V model, which is a well-being model which can, adults can use as well, which is developed by Martin Seligman, who uh, is at the University of Pennsylvania. And what is it that we can do to get children and adults to thrive, to really thrive? And this well-being model has been introduced to our students in our advisories, and we're asking them to have discussions around it. He used to be the president of the American Psychological Association. He's very, very experienced, and we will use this with greater intentionality in the next few years. I also think, secondly, we need to um, really focus on, I think, what is a, a bit of a new focus compared to when I entered education, which was about memorization and regurgitation, that old model. We need to create and iterate. So we have to allow our students, if you look at our fab lab and our discovery center, which we're about to open, and really every student now from grade seven and above and in other ways in our primary school are involved in design, innovation, discovery. It's about harnessing creativity beyond grade three. So it's not just the grade three attitude and that falls off a cliff. We have to allow creativity to flourish and to emerge. And we have to give them a belief that iterating is okay. One of the reasons we have that center is I saw somebody from MIT talk about how independent school kids who they were bringing into the center they had for high school kids at MIT, they said they're really good at doing school. We give them problems where there's no clear solution so they sort of want to get it the first time or they'll refine it or they'll live with a third attempt maybe. After that, they're like toast and teacups. They can become very frail. But it is a conflict because we, our kids live in a world where they, there are systems which say they have to have marks to get into a school to do X, Y, and Z. So we're constantly working about how to play with the realities of the world while building a culture which allows creativity and iteration to be part of it. And so I would, I would talk about also a third thing and this has been a personal priority in my whole adult life. And that is we need to teach children to want to know the other. The other being a person who, whether in the exterior, color of skin, religion, background, or just from a different part of the city who's really very different than me and has had a different life experience, we want to teach children to have a natural sense of inquiry about knowing the other, and that's building global competencies. This world is already global. It's not going to become global. It is global now. And we're preparing them for the tomorrow that they will have as, as young adults. But we have to bring this to bear on them and give our kids experiences. So I think that needs to be a focus of each and every school. And if you can't send kids abroad so they have some of those experiences, just make sure the discussion and the focus on building global competencies and also just an interest in difference it's such a valuable conversation and you know a discussion that obviously as education changes throughout the years we have to keep on having so as we sort of wind down and come to a close if you had one wish for the future of students or let's say of education in general you know what would it be and i guess the big question would be and are you optimistic about it well my problem is brevity i'm not very good at it I'll give you two. I actually think there are two. One is, and it goes back to a point I've already made. Students need to know they are enough. Perfection, as demonstrated through the online worlds, which they often see, is not possible. For those who, who seek it, it's elusive. And we have to find ways to have discussions and proactively counter the impact of social media, which is having some destructive consequences on, on students. 
Secondly, I go back to my comment about we have coming out of a, we're coming out about global learning. We're coming out of the pandemic. We have, you know, lived in our homes. We have lived in our campus, but we haven't gone very far. And up until that, I think, I thought, I think that LCC had done an extraordinary job of developing global opportunities for students, whether it was a conference, an exchange, an experience, a Duke of Ed trip with service and, and adventure, whatever it would be. But coming out of the pandemic, we should not be afraid of the world. And I think people are a little bit afraid of the world right now. Lurking around every corner is the next version of Omicron or whatever it is. But we need to allow our children in their minds and in their bodies to be explorers. They have to appreciate diversity and its complexity. By the way, the U.S. Army and military have a philosophy called VUCA. They actually teach their every student going in there that you live in a world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. VUCA. That's just a fact. So don't be alarmed by it. Navigate it. So we have to without alarming kids because, you know, we have our little world here. We, we can do all this without alarming them. But we need to give them experiences. And we need to give our teachers experiences, too, along this line. I think it's essential, especially for we have a number of we have close to 20 percent of our student body is international. But for the majority of students who are Canadian, they need to, through these experiences, appreciate the extraordinary blessings we have in this country and through the lens of experience and seeing other places and other cultures. And hopefully we will see that return to LCC in the near future. That's great. I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. And it's a privilege for me to have had you for this amount and to learn more about your background and education in general. And thank you very much for joining us. Well, it's a, it's a real pleasure. And, 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 you know, I'm a lucky person because I know some people who, when they drag themselves to work to create yet another widget, it's not like education where even though I think I know what my day is going to look like, it never really does. I get challenged regularly by students, by staff, by faculty. You can still say parents too. We know that's a challenge. And I'm a parent too, so it's all good. <laughs> And that's okay because everything is perfect. And, and I keep telling everybody my expertise is I don't know what I don't know. So I like to learn about certain corners of the school where things are going on that I don't really know about. But I would like to close by saying that I am so proud of our faculty and staff in COVID because people need to look back and remember that the healthcare workers were going and people were banging the pots. We came back to school four months after and for, for basically the last two years, last year, we didn't have a single vaccination in an arm until May, basically. And our people were coming to school because they knew it was the right thing for kids and they were superstars. And I thank them again and again and again, and we shan't forget. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It's so true. I also like to say we are a society without memory. So let's not forget that our faculty and staff did a great job of being there for our children. And I think that our, our school did a wonderful job during COVID about building a bridge to something as human as it possibly could be and keeping, keeping the well-being of our kids in the foreground. To the point that, as I told you, well-being is first in my mind now. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to wearelcc.ca slash podcast. And remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. 
Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.